The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck for your neck then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble if you lie down you will not be afraid when you lie down your sleep will be sweet do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes for the lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have had when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you, and do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you 
that you are the one true God who is the only source of truly perfect wisdom, knowledge, and truth. And Father, we thank you that we as your children have access to that. That Father, you willingly challenge us and ask us and provide a way for us to seek that so that we too, Lord, can fully understand what your will is in our lives and that you will give us by your spirit understanding, guidance, and power to be obedient to your word and to allow your will to work in and through us. Father, again, thank you that you have shared this with us and that you have you are the creator of this and you are the sustainer of this and you are the provider of this Father help us not to seek the wisdom of the world help us to seek your wisdom your guidance your strength your power and your knowledge in our daily lives that the decisions we make will not reflect upon our own selfishness and pride and the ways of our culture and of this world, but our decisions will be decisions that honor you. For, Father, our decisions either are for you or against you. And, Lord, it is our desire that we be a people for you, just as you are for us. Father, again, we just thank you for this time when we can assemble in your house. We thank you for each person and each family that is here. Lord, we ask that as we open your word and as your truth and wisdom is proclaimed from this pulpit, that, Lord, it will move out in power and that, Father, it will move out in the purpose that you cause it to. And, Father, we pray that even now that our hearts will be humbled before this great opportunity to, of hearing the truth of your word and the power of your word. And, Father, we just ask Lord, that as you uh, use your faithful servant in proclaiming the truth of your word, that, Father, that it will serve your purpose and that it will uh, bring conviction to those who need conviction. It will bring um, encouragement to those who need encouragement and that it will bring strength and power to those who need strength and power. But most of all, Father, we ask that if there is one here who does not know you, that your word will bring a day of salvation in their lives. Father, we pray this and we honor you and thank you for the truth and power and wisdom of your word. Lord, may our lives reflect that in our daily lives and in our decision making. And we be sure to do it for your honor and your glory. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. I would invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, you may be wondering if you fell asleep and somehow missed about five weeks of preaching between last week and this, because you would normally find us going from the introduction to a book into verse 1 of chapter 1. Isn't that our normal pattern? So when I told you to turn to James chapter 2, you all quizzingly looked at your Bibles like, what, what, what's going on? Um want to approach this study of James in a little different pattern. I, we need to go to James chapter 2 because we need to go right to the heart of this book and establish the foundation upon which everything else in the book is built in order for 
you to rightly understand what James is talking about and how it needs to apply to your life as we work our way through. And you may recall, if you were here last week, that I told you in the introduction that there was a central question in James and that there is a central answer to that question, which really forms the heart and soul of this book. And that central question is really the question of, how about the situation of a man who claims to have faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That is the burden of James' heart. That is the, the motivation which drives him to write this letter. And it's the heart of the issue that he's coming after. At the very end of chapter 2 and verse 26, he answers that central question with a central answer. And his answer is this, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That is James' thesis, and that is sort of the, the, uh, the center of the universe of this book around which everything else orbits. And so we need to go there this morning and establish this foundational passage in our minds so that we can then go back to verse 1 and work our way through and understand how all the pieces orbit around this central truth. And so that's the game plan for us um, this morning and in the weeks ahead. I want to paint for you a, a scenario that's, com- that's been common in my experience over the years. I'd be willing to bet it was, it's Pastor Frank's common experience over the years as well. The telephone rings, and it is Stur's funeral home, they call. Someone has died. And they're in need of a pastor to do the funeral service. And so we agree to do the service. And pretty soon after that, we arrange a meeting with the family of the one who is deceased. And the purpose of that meeting is, as a, a, a pastor who doesn't necessarily know this family, I want to get acquainted with them. I want to learn something, all that I can, about this person who is deceased before we have a service and we uh, talk about their life and we lay them to rest, so to speak. Almost always, that conversation eventually goes to the faith of the one that's deceased. I make it go there because I want to know. There's one burning question on my mind. This funeral that I'm doing for this person, I need to know before I go into that service, was this person a Christian or was he not? Did he know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior or did she not? I need to establish that in my mind because it shapes everything about how that service is going to go. And so I begin to ask probing questions to that family. Um, And I ask them things like, tell me about... Let's just say the name is Sue. Tell me about Sue's faith. And the family then begins to to talk to me. More often than not, I hear a phrase that goes something like this. Oh, Sue believed in God. Sue believed in Jesus. She was a Christian. And I have done this long enough to know I need to ask more questions than that. I need more information than that. That normally is enough for the family that I'm meeting with. But I ask further questions. Tell me about Sue's faith. Tell me about what her practice of her faith was like. 
I would say more often than not, when it's folks that I'm unfamiliar with beforehand, the end of the conversation about their faith ends with, she believed in God. She believed in Jesus. But then when you press for more information, tell me what that looked like in Sue's life. There's a lot of head scratching and a lot of looking around. Often they come up with, well, she went to such and such church. Oh, really? Well, tell me about her involvement in that church. Well, she attended there. That's where she went to church. Okay. It's a very rare occasion when I have those conversations and I ask about Sue's faith or Bob's faith. And the family says, you know what? Bob was a pagan who was lost, has died and gone to hell. Have you ever heard someone say that? I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. If you listen to the family at every conversation like that, whoever's dead is a Christian. But when you dig below the surface, you find that there's not much left behind from the life of the deceased that gives any evidence that the claim the family is making is actually true. That's a reflection of our society. The Barna Group did, has done studies historically over the years <clears throat> about Christianity in America. In their uh, surveys back in 2016, they produced a report called The State of the Church 2016. And they found that in a survey, 73% of Americans labeled themselves Christian. 73% labeled themselves Christian. Only 6% of Americans said they followed some other religion. And only 21% identified themselves with no faith or were not sure. The vast majority of people who live in our nation identify themselves as Christians. Now we would pause ourselves, pause for a moment, and we would ask the question, is that possibly true? Is it possible that 73% of our nation are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, people who have been redeemed by Christ and are being transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is that it's not possible because our nation would look drastically different as a nation were that statistic to be true. It's not true. However, there are an awful lot of people who believe that they are Christians when in fact they are not. That's the only thing we can conclude from that statistic and the reality that we see all around us. When you dig a little further into Barnett's statistics, he says 73% identify themselves as Christians. But then when you dig further, he, he splits them up into two groups. And one of those groups is what he calls practicing Christians, and the other group is what he calls non-practicing Christians. Of the 73% who self-identify as Christian, 41% are non-practicing Christians. Now, that's a category that uh, Barna has created all by himself. But James is going to tell us that that's a category that does not exist in reality. The whole thrust of James is to debunk the myth of the non-practicing Christian. The whole argument of James is that there is no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. The way James says it is in verse 17 of chapter 2, very succinctly, very directly. 
he says this, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Did you catch that? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That is James' single bullet to the heart of the non-practicing Christian idea. There is no such thing, James says, as a faith that doesn't work. It's dead. It's lifeless. It's useless. Now, as we read that, and perhaps as you hear it, maybe if it's the first time you've heard that, if you're familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, it immediately begins to bring up some some questions in your mind. Because it seems like, at least on a surface reading, that what James is saying in that verse is completely opposite to what Paul has argued in other places, like Ephesians chapter 2, 9 and 10, where Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So it seems like what we have is a contradiction here. It seems like we've got Paul saying that salvation is by faith alone, or sola fide, as we talked about a few weeks back, apart from works. And then on the other hand, we've got James who is saying, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead and can't save. So it seems like there's a contradiction. It seems like James and Paul need to get together and have a meeting and get on the same page. What I want you to see this morning as we work our way through this, and it's critical to understanding this book and the central theme of it, is that there is absolutely no essential contradiction in what James articulates and what Paul articulates. It's only an apparent contradiction when we live only on the surface. There are a couple of ways that we make sense of this and resolve it quite easily. The first is we have to consider the context. The Apostle Paul was dealing primarily in his experience of ministry with one particular problem in the church. It was a problem that was sort of started and stirred up and continued by a group of people called the Judaizers. Back when we studied the the book of Acts, we talked about this group. The Judaizers were, were... Jewish people who had converted to Christianity, but they were arguing that in order to be a Christian, one had to first be a Jew and had to keep the Old Testament law. That to be a Christian, it was faith in Christ plus keeping the Old Testament law. It was a combination of faith plus works. That one had to do both of those things in order to gain salvation. So the Judaizers were arguing that the only way to be saved is a combination of faith plus the Old Testament law. And Paul is doing battle against that belief system throughout his ministry. Paul is arguing all the time, no, salvation comes to us by faith alone. There is nothing that we can do on the front side to earn our salvation. There are no amount of works that we can do good, whether they're the Old Testament law or anything else, that can gain us entry into the kingdom of God. Paul is dealing with the root of salvation. Where does salvation begin? And he says salvation begins by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any works. James is dealing with an altogether different problem in the church. 
James is not dealing with Judaizers who are trying to add works to faith on the front side. James is dealing with a dead orthodoxy and empty professions. He's dealing with people who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but their lives show absolutely no evidence of it. Paul is dealing with the root of salvation where it begins. James is, James is addressing the fruit of salvation. What grows out of the root? Francis Gensch said this way. I thought this was brilliant. Paul is dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how Christian life grows and matures and ages. It's a good way of capturing that. You see, there are two dangers that existed in Paul and James's day in the Christian church. And those same two dangers exist in our day in the modern Christian church. And, and these are two dangers that relate to faith and works. The first danger is this, that believing somehow works contribute to our salvation on the front side. There are still people who articulate that today. We've talked about that in the last several weeks as we were looking at the the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church, adds works to the front side of salvation. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, articulate some contorted type of faith in Jesus that adds a bunch of works on the front side of it. This, this, this idea that somehow works contribute to our salvation on the front side is a number one error. And we see it today just like Paul saw it in his day. But there's another error that we deal with in our day that they dealt with in their day. And that is the idea that works are irrelevant. That they don't matter at all. That their presence or absence makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. Paul was dealing with that first problem. James deals with the second. In order for us to capture this, we need to understand what salvation looks like. What does it look like in the life of a human being to be saved? When the Bible talks about our salvation, it talks about it in three different tenses. There is a sense in which, as a Christian, I have been saved. There is a sense in which I, as a Christian, am being saved. And there is a sense in which, as a Christian, one day I will be saved. The Bible paints our salvation in all three tenses. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. You have been saved through faith. There's a sense in which salvation operates in the past. Let me give you this definition that's important, and we'll break it out this way. Capture this. Salvation is a process which begins with an event. It is a process which begins with an event. If a person is saved, their salvation began, at least their experience of it, with an event. Somebody gave them the gospel, and in that moment they heard the gospel, what happened? They believed, they turned from their sin, repented, and they trust and trusted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. In that moment, there's a sense in which they are saved. When I look back at my life, there was a time when I was a very young man, the gospel was presented to me, and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which, in that moment, I was saved. The theological term for that is justification. 
It was in that moment that God declared the young man who was previously a sinner in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, headed for an eternal hell. He, he, he declared him righteous based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He declared me not guilty of the penalty of my sin. And that happened in a moment in time. In that sense, I can look back and I can say, I've been saved. There was a point in time when I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, God justified me. He declared me not guilty of my sin. Because my sin was transferred to Jesus who paid the penalty for it. In that sense, I've been saved. That's justification. But I can also say about my own salvation that not only have I been saved, I am being saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says it this way in verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul, who talks about salvation in the past, also describes salvation as being a, a present reality. Not only have I been saved in the sense that I've been justified, but at this very moment, I am being saved. The theological word for that is sanctification. You see, from the moment I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was justified, a new process begins in my life. God begins to transform me into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the behaviors of the flesh, He begins to chip away from my life, and He begins to build into me the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And that is a process that begins at the moment I'm justified, and it ends the moment I die. And in between there, God is transforming me and making me a little more like Jesus. It's in that sense that I'm constantly being saved. But there's a sense in which also the Bible says, I will one day be saved. Matthew 24, verse 12 and following, And because lawlessness will be increased, Jesus says, The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The theological word for that is glorification. There's a time when I'm going to die. And at that point, my life ends. The sanctification process, that purifying process, that shaping me into the image of Jesus comes to a conclusion and in that minute in that moment i'm absent from this body i am present with the lord and every trace of sin is eliminated from my life forever glorified like the lord jesus christ it's called glorification if you put that slide up for me jp um, i want you to see how these three things look compared to each other because it's really important there's a sense in which we have been saved. That's justification. We have been saved from the penalty of our sin. Okay? That's justification. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. And one day we are going to be saved from the presence of sin. We've been saved from the penalty. We're being saved from the power because what's happening is God is making me more like Jesus and He's increasing in my heart the power to resist sin and to do what is righteous. And one day, the presence of sin altogether is going to be eliminated from my life. Why does this matter? Why are you taking on this little theological trip? Because it's important for us to understand salvation when it is true, when it is authentic, when it is genuine, it involves all three of those pieces. 
It involves justification, and everyone who is justified is then sanctified. And everyone who is sanctified is eventually glorified. It's three pieces of a puzzle that go together. You cannot separate them off and break justification off as though it stands alone from the other pieces. There is no concept of a person who is justified but never sanctified. And it's important for us to understand that. To clarify what Paul is saying in regards to what James is saying. Paul is speaking about justification when he talks about faith and works. James is talking about sanctification. Paul is talking about that event in a moment in time that is the entryway into salvation. James is talking about the process that begins at that moment and goes through the rest of our lives. And for a person to be genuinely saved, both of those things must be the reality. That's actually the point James is making. And it's a, it's a point that Paul makes on many, many occasions as well. The reason that's important, again, is because when we read James, we're talking about sort of gauges for living faith. How to gauge whether or not we really know Christ or whether what we possess is dead faith. And it's important for us to understand that he's talking about sanctification, this process by which we're transformed into the image of Jesus, because that is a process that goes on forever and we never reach perfection in this life. Do you understand that? God is transforming us in the image of Jesus, but we're never perfectly like Him here, right? Unless I'm wrong. Are any of you perfectly like Jesus right now? No, good. You don't admit it if you think so, right? But sanctification is a process that is a a trajectory. In other words, from the moment I come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, He begins changing me into the image of Jesus, and I grow and grow and grow and grow and grow in my righteousness. Now, there are, along that path, many setbacks, That happened, right? So if we were looking at like a timeline of righteousness, it starts down low, and I begin to become more righteous and more righteous. Oh, then I go through a season where it flatlines, and then maybe I go through a season where I step back a few steps. But then I go forward. And you understand what I'm saying? And so when I'm looking at sanctification in my life, I'm not looking for perfection. I'm looking for trajectory. When I look back over the last ten years of my life, I'm not asking the question, am I perfect? Do I always get it perfectly right? I'm asking the question, do I see a a change in trajectory? Am I becoming more and more? Is there evidence that I'm becoming more and more like Jesus? That's what James is after. And it's important for us to understand that as we work through this passage and as we work through this book. We'll come back to that quite a bit. There's another challenge in resolving James and Paul, and that is that they use vocabulary words that are the same, but they have different meanings. And I'll point those out as we work through our text this morning. For for Paul, when he uses the word works, he's talking about something altogether different than what James is talking about. When Paul uses the word justify, he's talking about something altogether different than what James is talking about. And we'll point those things out this morning. So Paul looks at the root, James is looking at the fruit. That's what we need to know looking at this passage. Let's begin at the very beginning. Verse 14 of chapter 2. This is where James introduces us to the central question of the book. What good is it, my brothers, he says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Is my PowerPoint not there? Is it dead? Oh, there it is. Okay, I got it. Okay, thank you, brother. I just wanted to make sure I had it because otherwise I've got to read some stuff that's on the screen. All right. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith 
save him? Can it save him? James introduces the idea here in this very first verse that there is a kind of faith that cannot save. That there is a kind of faith that is dead, that is a corpse. Now, as we think about that, we should probably say that what James is talking about is a faith. You know what I mean? We would have to put that kind of faith in quotes because it's not an actual kind of faith. It's a so-called faith. It is something that people call faith, but it isn't real faith because it's dead. It doesn't live and it's powerless. Note carefully how James sets this up. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The important word in that sentence is the word says. What is James claiming? There is somebody out there, or there are some people out there, who say, who claim that they have faith, but they don't have any works. Can that faith save him? That faith that James is challenging is a type of faith that is all talk and no action. It is a faith that is claimed with the mouth, but there is no evidence in the life that it exists. It is, a, it is a faith that claims justification, but there is no evidence of any sanctification in the life. And James is saying, when we look at somebody, and all that we have are their words, what they claim, but we look at their lives and we see no evidence, is that the kind of faith that saves? It's only words, there's no substance. It's only words, it never affects the life. Can that faith save? And James, in the Greek, he casts this question with the assumption of a negative answer. In other words, he's asking the question and telling you right at the front, the answer is no, it cannot. Now, what works does James have in mind? That's an important word in this. Can someone claim to have faith, have have no works, be saved? What works is James talking about? Well, again, this is one of those areas where Paul and James use the word works differently. When Paul speaks of works, Paul is thinking of works of the law, works of the Old Testament law that are added to in order to gain salvation, works that somehow merit salvation on the front side. When James speaks of works, he has no concept, he has no idea in his meaning of works of the Old Testament law. He's talking about works that flow out of a saved heart. He's talking about works like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. So when Paul talks about works, he's talking about works of the law of the Old Testament to gain entry. James is talking about righteous deeds that flow out of the saved heart as a result of salvation. So James is saying, what about the person who claims with his mouth to be a believer, but there are no righteous deeds in his life that play that out? There's been no transformation to the heart that flows into behavior. What about that guy? Can that kind of a faith that he claims save him? Is is there a kind of saving faith that never shows up in life? Is there such a category as the Clairol Christian? It looks like one thing on the outside, but it's not real. Is it possible, let me say it this way, to ask Jesus into my heart and never experience a changed life? Is it possible to sign on the dotted line of a gospel tract and there never be any evidence in my life that anything is different? 
That's the question James is asking. And his answer is no. It's not possible. It is absolutely impossible. There is no such thing. There are only two kinds of faith. One is a living faith which transforms the lives, transforms the life and saves the soul, and there is a dead so-called faith which is merely words and all it does is damn. Martin Luther uh, was not the biggest fan of the book of James. He called it a right strawy epistle. He said it wasn't one of the chief books of the New Testament. It doesn't surprise us because what did Martin Luther fight in his life? He was fighting a Roman Catholic church that taught that in order to be a Christian, you had to do all sorts of things, go through all sorts of ceremonies, and you needed the church in order to be saved. And God freed him from all that. So when he reads James, it seems to him like James is articulating some of the stuff that he's been fighting against, and he has a very difficult time separating the two. But make no mistake that Luther gets the point here. Listen to what he says about living faith, the kind that James talks about. He says, oh, it is a living busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good things are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this, and it's constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith in good works, but knows neither what faith nor good works really are. Yet, He talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. You see, Luther understood the point. That the person who talks and talks and talks many words about faith and good deeds, but doesn't actually ever do them, is an unbeliever. And that's exactly what James is articulating here. The main thesis of the book of James is this. Authentic faith produces righteous actions. Authentic faith produces righteous actions. And secondarily to that, fraudulent faith does not produce a pattern of righteous actions. And it can't save. You got that? If we could imagine a fire in the fireplace, who's got a house with a fire in a fireplace? Pastor Frank has a house with a fire in the fireplace. Do you have a chimney? He has a chimney too. I have a fire in a fireplace, but I have no chimney. So, so let's imagine that we go to Pastor Frank's house on a cold, wintry night, and he has a fire in the fireplace. There are two ways that we can know if Pastor Frank has a fire in his fireplace. Way number one, we can knock on the door, ring the doorbell. If he likes us, he'll answer and let us in. If he doesn't, he'll pretend he isn't home. But... He opens the door and we walk into his house and we walk into his living room and we look into the fireplace and what do we see in the fireplace? We see a fire! And we can say, ah, Pastor Frank has a fire in the fireplace. That's Paul. That's Paul. He walks into the house, he looks into the fireplace and he says, there's a fire in that, in that house. James says, I don't need to ring his doorbell. I don't need to go in his house. All I need to do is drive by and I just need to look at the chimney. And I need to look and see if there's smoke coming out. And if I see smoke coming out of the chimney, then I don't have to go inside. All I I can tell you with full assurance, there's a fire in that guy's fireplace. Right? Paul's the guy going in the house looking at the heart of it. James is the guy riding by on the street says, I don't need to go inside. I can see it. If there's a fire in the fireplace, there's going to be smoke coming out of the chimney. No smoke, no fire. 
That helps me. Here in this text, just really quickly and obviously, James gives us some characteristics of dead faith that distinguishes it from living faith. The first thing he tells us is dead faith is indifferent to human needs. It's indifferent to human needs. Listen to how he says this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James sets up a scenario, and it's an outrageous scenario. It's an outrageous scenario. It's an exaggeration, but every exaggeration has roots in reality. And he says, let me paint a picture for you to prove to you that faith without works is useless. He says, if a brother or sister among you, that's important, who are we talking about when he says a brother or sister? We're talking about somebody who is a part of what? A part of the church. We're not talking about strangers here. We're talking about somebody who's in the body of Christ. Suppose somebody in your church family, all right, has a problem. They're poorly clothed, lacking in daily food. We don't capture that fully from the English. They don't have sufficient clothing. They don't have sufficient food supplies to sustain their life. They are in desperate need. Suppose you run across someone in your church family who has such severe needs. And one of you, who are we talking about? Somebody also within the same church, right? One of you, believers, one of you who claims to know the Lord Jesus, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Now, that's a striking scenario. You're a believer. You claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You're navigating in the body of Christ. You come across another believer who has very real, I mean, serious needs that are the most basic needs of human life, right? Food and clothing. And all you can do is say to them, is to give them a blessing. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Good luck getting some food and some clothes. I'll pray for you. But you do absolutely nothing to help them. James says, what good is that? Again, James assumes the answer. It's no good. We all know the answer to that question. It's no good, right? That kind of faith is useless. It's useless for the person who claims to have it because it can't save them. And it's useless to the person in need because he doesn't help them. So it's all around useless to have a faith that's indifferent to human needs. First John chapter 3, listen to how John says this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and listen to how he says this, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? I love how John writes that. He, he captures the same scenario that James puts out there, right? Sees his brother in need, but sees the need and then closes off his heart against that person. That's my brother, that's my sister who has a need. And when I see it and I know about it, I close off my heart say, I'm not doing anything. How can the love of Christ be in that person, John asks. James says, can that kind of a faith save? And the answer is no, it can't. That kind of faith, 
James says in verse 17, is dead. It's dead. It's a kind of faith that is fraudulent, and it shows itself to be fraudulent because when confronted with human needs that are real in the body, it closes off its heart, and it's cold and indifferent and does absolutely nothing to help. James's point isn't that the person should have done everything to solve that person's problem. His point is that genuine faith would have moved his heart of compassion to do something. To do something. And in fact, he does nothing. And the fact that he does nothing invalidates his claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ because he's indifferent to human needs. That's a pretty strong, strong scenario. James uses a pun in there. He says this, faith without works doesn't work. And he's right. It doesn't. It's useless. It's dead. One of the ways you know the difference between fraudulent faith and genuine, authentic faith is the fraudulent kind is all words. But when it's confronted with human needs in the area of love and compassion, it closes its heart and doesn't meet the need. It does nothing but give words of blessing that are meaningless. It pats them on the back and says, I'll pray for you, and goes the other way while they're left hungry and without clothes. But genuine faith isn't like that. It's filled with compassion for those who are in need. And it knows that even if I can't do everything, even if I can't solve all this person's problems, I'm going to do something. If I can't solve their problem forever, right now I'm going to get them something to eat. I'm going to try and get them some clothes. I'm going to do something. It acts. It doesn't just talk. And then in verse 19, he tells us the second thing, verse 18. Dead faith is not only indifferent to human needs, but it's merely intellectual. Merely intellectual. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James changes things up here. He introduces to us an imaginary objector. Did you catch that? He introduces an imaginary person. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, what's this someone doing? This someone that James introduces is giving an argument. And the argument is simply this, that faith and works are two separate categories. We may or may not have both, but one or the other is sufficient. He's arguing that it's possible to have a true faith that's only intellectual but has no works. That it's possible to be a believer and and just by believing in our minds but never acting in any way that validates that. And James says, all right, I'll answer that objection. He says, prove it. He says, show me that kind of faith. Show me your faith without any works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, that's an interesting challenge. How would you answer the challenge if you're the objector? And someone says, okay, show me your faith apart from any works. Is that even possible? You can't show something apart from doing something. And James exposes by asking the question and by labeling the challenge the absurdity of the claim. What does this person look like that the objector is arguing for? It looks like the person that you run into on the streets or the person that you navigate with in your family that says things like this. Well, for me, faith is a private matter. I believe in God. It looks like the person who says, I believe in God, but I'm just not one of those holy rollers. 
You heard that? It sounds like you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You see, all those phrases and all those arguments are arguments that boil down to a concept that I can believe in Jesus and do nothing that gives any evidence of that. It's just merely intellectual. It's just a claim to believe something. But no transformed life. It also shows up in the astute theologian who shows absolutely no fruit of the Spirit. You see, she knows the Bible. He can articulate theology. They love to impress with their knowledge. But their lives tell a different story. It's like the marriage counselor who's been through five divorces. Right? Lots of great advice. But the life shows a different story. James answers the objector. He says, negative ghostwriter. That's my translation. Negative ghostwriter. You show me your faith without actions, and I'll show you my faith by my actions. By the way, John the Baptist articulates the same thing. You can go back to Luke chapter 3 and read that for yourself. Jesus articulates the same thing. Paul in Acts chapter 26 articulates the same thing. And James sarcastically congratulates the objector whose faith is merely intellectual by saying this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Can you hear James saying that? He's like, congratulations. You believe that God is one. Congratulations, friend. Congratulations, friend. Your faith is elevated to the level of demons because they also believe that. Did you catch that? You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe that and they shudder. You have a faith that is merely intellectual, that believes that there's a God, that believes that there's a Lord Jesus Christ, that He's the Son of God. You believe those things? Congratulations. All the demons believe those things too. And they'll spend an eternity in the pit of hell. So will you, if that's all you got. In fact, he makes the argument that the demons are actually in better shape because he says the demons believe that and they shudder. That means to tremble to tremble violently, uncontrollably, out of fear. You see, the demons believe those things, and they understand the implications of what that means for them. But the person who runs around in our day saying, Oh, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe, I believe, I believe, and there's nothing in their life that gives any evidence of that, is no better than a demon. Is no more saved than a demon. That's what Paul says. I mean, it's what James says. It's what he argues. A faith that's merely intellectual is no faith at all. It's dead, it's useless, and worthless. He wraps up this passage by giving two examples in verses 20 through 25. He introduces Abraham and he introduces Rahab. He introduces a male, the most righteous person in the history of Israel. And he introduces a female prostitute. And he couldn't have introduced two people more differently. He uses Abraham and he uses Rahab. And he introduces people on the furthest poles of the spectrum. A male in that culture that was very patriarchal, who was extremely righteous, and everyone agreed with that. And a female 
who was a prostitute known to be unrighteous. And he says both of these are examples of what saving faith looks like. And what they have in common with one another is their faith was put into action in their lives. Their faith has validating evidence. And the key verse in there, because our time is up, is simply this. He gives us Abraham, and he reminds us of Abraham sacrificing Isaac on the altar, or being willing to, before the Lord stopped him. And he uses that as evidence. Look, Abraham was already declared to be righteous by God long before that. But the activity of putting his son on the altar and being willing to go through that, that, that activity, that work, James says, justified him it justified him and this is where we get confused because when james uses the word justify he uses it in a different way that paul uses it when but paul says justify he means to declare righteous when james uses justify he means to validate as righteous or to demonstrate as righteous two different things altogether. Paul says that we are justified by faith. We are declared righteous by faith on the front end of salvation. James says on the back side of it, we're justified in the sense that our works demonstrate or validate our claim to faith. It's like a driver's license. My driver's license doesn't make me a driver. It just validates that I know how to drive. Mostly. Or as Chuck Swindoll says, faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can always see their results. That's a good one. And so that's the, <clears throat> that's the argument of James. That's the foundation of James. Authentic faith produces righteous actions which demonstrate and validate a claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith looks like. Fraudulent, dead, useless faith is only a claim, but has no life activity to demonstrate or validate that. Do you see the point? Throughout this book, James is going to give us example after example of how this plays out and ways that we can test our own selves to see whether our faith is the genuine, authentic kind or the dead, fraudulent kind. He's going to ask us to look at our life through several different lenses that I mentioned last week. So let me wrap this up by taking this all the way back around to the beginning. How do we need to evaluate this this morning as we wrap it up? Let me bring it home to you this way. I want you to imagine this morning that you walk out of the doors of this building and you pull out onto Beast Ferry Road and instantly you're in a head-on collision and you die. Got it? Your life is extinguished when you leave this room. And I want you to imagine that your family is the family that's meeting with me to plan the service. And I'm asking them those questions about you. Tell me about Bob's life. Tell me about Bryce's faith. Tell me about Raymond's walk with the Lord. What kind of evidence from your life would your family have to present to the pastor in that context to help him to see that you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Would it only be claims? Would it only be words? Would it only be things like, well, he believed in Jesus. She believed in God. She went to the church services. Or would there be evidence that demonstrate 
that those claims are valid. That's the question that James leaves us with. And it's the question that's on your doorstep this morning. It's on mine. Let's evaluate that in our own hearts as we pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for our salvation. We thank You that You died on the cross and shed Your blood to pay the penalty for our sins. And that You've told us with Your very own mouth that whoever comes to You will never turn them away. That whoever confesses with their mouth that You're the Lord believes in their heart that God raised You from the dead will be saved, will be justified. And then in that moment, You begin to transform us into Your image. You chip away our sin and our habits that disappoint You. And You begin to build into us a righteous life, a compassionate heart, a love for people in need. And You begin to build into our lives a new track record of how we live. You change us. This morning as we wrap up thinking through what James has challenged us with, we're thinking about our own deaths and we're asking the hard question, would there be enough evidence in our lives that our families would have something to say to the pastor should we die today? Would there be enough evidence in the way we've lived that our families would be comforted beside our graveside to know that we're absent from the body, but we're present with you. Because our lives demonstrated and validated our claim to faith. For those who answer that question in their own heart this morning with a resounding yes, we celebrate, Lord. And we give you all the glory for the change of life that you bring. It's not of us, it's your work. But for those who look at their own lives and they, being honest with themselves, realize there's not much evidence. I pray that you would drive them to yourself this morning. If they possess dead faith, just an empty claim, that they would run to you in repentance and by faith believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You do your work among us, we pray by your Spirit. Amen.